This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with Sheila Kolhatkar. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and a former risk arbitrage analyst, and I'm going to ask her what the heck that means in a moment, for two hedge funds in New York City. For The New Yorker, Sheila writes about Wall Street, Silicon Valley, economics, and national politics, among other things. And her latest book is the New York Times bestseller, Black Edge, about the largest insider trading investigation in history and the transformation of Wall Street and the U.S. economy. Welcome to Think Again, Sheila. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming. So there are many ways to begin an interview, but I want to try something today, which is a website called Random Word Generator. It's going to, it doesn't generate words because obviously all the words already exist, but I guess it's picking a word out of the English language. And basically the rules of this will be, we'll generate a word and if it seems like something that gets us into your book, then we'll start there. But we get one chance to pass if it's no good at all. All right? All right. Cool? I'm up for all it. All right, let's see. So the word is, I'm clicking the button, and the word is frequent. I think that comes up quite a few times. Uh, hedge fund traders were frequently arrested in my book. Yes, and they trade frequently. They are frequent traders. Like frequently frequently buying and selling. Uh, they curse frequently. They do curse frequently. Yes. I have to say, I was listening because the preparation for this interview fell partly in the middle of travel to 4th of July vacation, I was listening to the audiobook and reading the book and going back and forth. I'm listening in the car with my nine-year-old son, and there was a fair amount of cursing. I was, informed by, <laughs> I was informed by my little niece and nephew, who are very young, that there's an F word on the very first page of the book, and I was kind of mortified. I didn't realize. I, I, I'm aware that a lot of Wall Street Guys, mostly guys kind of working in the trenches, they're very salty and yeah. um, colorful in their language. And I kind of love that about them, but yet yeah, the, the, the F word comes up several times in the book, and a few people have been offended by that. I'm yeah, sorry. Well, it, no, it is what it is. I mean, it doesn't say it's for nine year olds. Typically, nine year olds don't want to hear books about like hedge funds. 
necessarily, but Unless, he actually said he enjoyed it. Oh, say. really? Oh, anyway. that's exciting. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So, but, okay. So, yeah, salty language, very aggressive world, and you were in it for a little while, yeah? For a couple years, two years, three years? About five years. Five years, okay. Yes. And what exactly is a, like, what did I say? Risk, arbitrage, analyst, what is, what is that? So hedge funds are these little private investment funds, right. and they have all different things that they do. They have different strategies. Some of them invest in, in commodities. Some invest in foreign currencies. Some invest in just in boring stocks in the U.S. Risk arbitrage is a strategy where you, um, you are basically uh, making an investment, making a bet on the outcome of an announced uh, merger or takeover or spinoff, like a corporate... Okay event. Okay. And the thing that's kind of cool about that type of investment is that, um, I mean, certainly the way we were doing it, which was a very kind of conventional sort of straightforward way of doing this, we would wait until a deal was announced. Like um, AOL was buying Time Warner. Right, right, <laughs> A wonderful right. deal that we, that right. was a big success. You know, usually the company, one company's sort of buying the other company and they're going to offer some of their stock in exchange for the shares of the company they're buying. Right. And, um, you know, there's like a formula. They're offering 0.5 shares, whatever it is. And uh, they w there will be a little price difference between the two stocks that will gradually close during the time between right. the announcement of the deal and when the deal actually closes. Right. And that little, it's called a spread, is something that you can earn if you set up an investment where you're long one stock, short the other. Eventually, they're going to converge and become the same thing. Okay. And you will earn that little spread, that price differential, and um, if you are what quick enough to to get in at the right well, second or whatever. Yeah. So part of the, the the real the intellectual part of the job involves analyzing how sound that deal is. And, I see. Um, anytime a big merger is announced, uh, there's there's a risk that the government could block it. Right. It could fall apart for another reason. One of the companies could blow up or have a fraud and the deal will, will collapse. Right. Uh, another party could come in and make a takeover offer for one of the two companies. I mean, all sorts of things could happen. So your job as a risk arbitrage analyst is to analyze the risks that the deal will not conclude the way you expect. Because any of those wild card events can cause you to lose a lot of money. So it's a bit like being an investigative reporter because... You've got your deals that you're invested in. You have a certain amount right. of money at risk and those deals, and you have to kind of monitor them for any little hiccups. I see. And uh, it's a, it involves a lot of research, phone calls, similar to my job now, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yep. Well, now, n knowledge of any kind, like, you know, intel of any kind, whether you got it through research or whatever, is, is or through insider trading is called edge uh, it's a, you know you, you mentioned this in the book a few times um, and there's so there's white edge gray edge and black edge which is like basically degrees of of whether this is public knowledge or whether it is shady or illegal information and this book is about the takedown of SAC capital is that then yeah Stephen yep. Cohen's hedge fund which was very much trading in black edge. I mean, sti stick, sticking with the arbitrage thing for a second, like how do you, as an analyst, is it just like you just hope that you're brainier and better at investigating than the next hedge fund? You know, how do you get edge of any kind in something that super smart people who have all gone to Wharton or wherever 
are scrutinizing so intensely? Like, well, this is a very good question that the government frequently raises because there are so many hedge funds out there and they all have these really brilliant, determined people working at them and right. they're all trying to get the edge. And uh, edge is this term that refers to kind of any useful piece of information you have. It does not necessarily mean that information's illegal. Right. And most hedge fund people say, no, no, edge is just your little thing, your nugget, your, your idea, your proprietary research, whatever that is. Right. Um, so there are all sorts of different things that you can do, and a large hedge fund that has, uh, you know, billions of dollars potentially under management has a lot of resources to spend on research, and so they, they will hire experts to teach them about the industries. Right. They might speak with former employees of a company they're they're investing in. Uh, they might. Um, this is something that's become all the rage lately. They will. They will uh, buy satellite imagery of parking lots of big box retail chains okay. to try and figure out the traffic. You know, they will send people to China to sit outside Foxconn and monitor the trucks going in. I mean, they 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 will do anything. They'll hire people to go into to stores or into businesses and just sort of gather intelligence now. So there is a lot of like publicly available information that not everybody has access to because it requires a fair amount of legwork or, you know, thinking to, 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 that is the to argument. pay attention to. There's a lot you can do that is in the realm of, that. it's something that anyone could do if they were enterprising and put in the time, anyone could do. The, right. the, the stuff that is clearly the black edge, the, the inside information, is uh, material non-public information. It is it is uh, information that someone who's an insider at the company right. is in possession of, that they have a duty to keep confidential, and they they you know they often share that information when they're not supposed to, right. and um, that can move a stock price. You know that's something that not just anyone with a with time on their hands could go get. You need someone to tell that to you. Right, right. So, you know, I and many people like myself who know very little about the financial industry, I'm definitely leaning towards like the arts and humanities. You know, we are, or well, I can speak for myself. I'm inclined to be skeptical of the financial industry and to think, you know, to think skeptically about an industry that is, you know, essentially not producing anything but money. I suppose it drives the economy. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. But your your book does not uh, alleviate that skepticism. You know, I I, I am I am yeah. I, first of all like it leaves me wondering whether there is ever whether there can ever be such a thing as a clean Wall Street. What, what do you what do you think about that? And sort of what would that even yeah what would that look like? Well, uh, just to address yeah, the first yeah, part of yeah, your, yeah. your question. Yeah, that's a lot of questions. Yes, I, I that was part of the reason I wanted to write the book actually because I thought the story was very juicy and kind of gripping and interesting. How, but I thought it really was important also for people to kind of get a glimpse into this world and what people are actually up to because you hear about hedge funds. Hedge funds are major backers of political candidates. Right. They, they put their names on museums. They're backing charter schools in a lot of places. They're very active, but nobody really understands what they're up to. So um, right, and I should say that like backing charter schools and you know that all of the things that they do to make themselves visible and comprehensible to the broader public are positive PR moves. You know that look good for them, but don't actually transparently show what they're doing. Yes, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I mean, they may make anonymous <laughs> philanthropic donations okay. as well, but right. usually they like to have their names splashed on buildings where they give a lot of money. So right. so the idea behind a hedge fund originally was that it was this very special type of investment where you could you would just park like a little bit part of your assets 
and the hedge fund would be hedging its investments. So it would be long some things and it would be short, like right. betting on a decline in a stock price, other things. And you would that little piece of investment that you had with that hedge fund wouldn't just be going up and down with the S&P 500. It would be correlated to some other index, some other thing that that hedge fund manager was doing. It was sort right. of protected from the swings in the market. Right. Because you, you'll notice your 401k, whatever you have, if the Dow goes way up, it goes up. And then when the Dow crashes, your your retirement fund shrinks and you're just you're just sort of at the mercy of the broad market swings. Right. And, and so I should say that long, you know, for anyone who might not know, going long means that you're betting that the stock will go up and short means you're betting that it will go, the prices will go down. That's yeah. right. So hedge funds have a lot more flexibility and most investors are not shorting, but hedge funds specifically can short things. So they can kind of say, well, I think this is a really strong airline company. I'm going to go long this airline, but I think this airline is really weak. I'm going to short that one. And you know, so they can—they they have the ability to profit from weakness. Right. You know, and right. They're not just sort of looking for things that are going up. So, so it's a way to kind of protect some of your money, so that's not just at the mercy of the general market. So that was the idea behind it. And of course, what's happened is the hedge fund industry was so successful, uh, it, especially at generating money for the people running the hedge funds. I mean, the, they charge very high fees. Um, they're very picky about who can invest. Only wealthy people can really invest in hedge funds or big. Uh, endowments or pension funds. Right. So now they've turned into this enormous up up to three trillion dollar kind of industry, and they have a huge amount of influence. And um, they've really changed the rest of Wall Street because the big banks, like right. firms like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, all these companies you hear about a lot, their job really in the economy is to provide the fuel for economic growth. They are there to help companies have IPOs to help companies get loans so they can grow their businesses. Right. They are, that's their role. That is why they exist. And um, they're, they're very, like sober and staid and sort of a backbone of the economy. That's right. Yeah. They're, 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 the, capital, the whole capital market system is, is, is really the fuel and the engine of the economy. And um, the economy will not grow if companies can't get loans to build new plants, hire new people, all this stuff. So that's why those companies exist. And they, you know, they help banks help people get mortgages, all that. So what's happened is, as the industry, the hedge fund industry, has become more powerful and much richer, and minting billionaires every year. Yeah. All of those surrounding kind of big institutions, big banks and investment banks, have started to kind of cater to the hedge funds more and want to almost emulate them themselves. And they've all gotten much more involved in this what they call proprietary trading, which is trading their own money, mm. and um, also trying to keep their hedge fund clients happy by giving them whatever they want. So those hedge funds will then do their stock trading with them, and they can make money off commissions. And a lot of you know critics believe that those big, those big banks and investment banks have have largely abandoned what they're supposed to be doing and have moved into this much more speculative type of activity. Riskier. Riskier yeah. and all the kinds of things that led to the financial crisis, sure. frankly. Um, you know, betting on mortgage, subprime mortgages and, and bundling mortgages into securities and selling them, all this stuff that just blew up when the, the real estate market went down. What were those companies doing? Right mucking around in that world. That was sort of the stuff that you expect hedge funds to do, but right. actually big banks and investment banks were up to their eyeballs and all that stuff. And I think it's partly a result of just the influence of the hedge fund world and just how powerful that world has become and how effective as a way to generate wealth. So it's maybe a yeah. little like what's happening with sort of large established 
companies, the old corporate America running scared from startups. A little similar, like yep. they've got this cool edge and this fast exponential growth and whatever. Yep, and billionaires at age 30, yeah. you know, that whole thing. It's very intriguing to people. I mean, they want to yeah. get in on that. So I, I, just to quickly answer your yeah, question yeah, about yeah, yeah, how yeah, can, yeah, yeah, can hedge funds really be clean and legit, of course, I believe many of them are, and they, they all do different things, and not all of those things lend themselves to pushing the line of what's legal. They would always argue, well, we manage a lot of pension fund money, and that's a good thing because pensioners are, are benefiting from our brilliance and right. our high returns. They're also among the only investors who have an incentive to find fraud, to find companies that okay. are like faking their numbers, are mistreating people whose products are poisoning so people. So they're sort of providing a benefit, an ancillary benefit in that way. They do, and like yeah. Enron, for example, a very famous big corporate fraud. Right. I mean, a hedge fund, they were the, hedge funds were the first to kind of really raise serious questions about Enron. So they do have this, they, they, some of them have this important watchdog role, and there are very few other kind of actors in the market who have a motivation to find frauds. But if you're a hedge fund and you figure out before anyone else that a company is you know, very problematic, and you short that company. You right. can make a lot of money, so they're motivated. You know, they're motivated to do that. So that that those are all good things. Sure. Um, but I think the argument that they don't really create a lot of value to the larger economy is very valid. They extract a lot. They they uh, the successful right. ones they make a lot of money, but they pay this sort of artificially low tax rate on a lot of what they make. They're, the jobs they create are relatively few relative to the money that they're making. Right. They really contribute to this speculation, short-term thinking that sort of infected the economy in a way that's not always helpful. So I think it's a legitimate question, what value do they add Right. You know, what what are they taking out versus what are they putting in? Right, that they may uh, uh, long-term, big picture, destabilize the economy somewhat or at least um, increase inequality by concentrating wealth in a few hands and, yeah, not adding much, right? I think that's a valid question to ask. They they would disagree, of course, but right. it's, it's a, definitely worth debating. Right, 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 right. What was it like for you? I mean, it's obviously an extremely masculine world in a lot of ways. Like, and I don't, you know, we can debate what's masculine and what's feminine, but it's like, you know, super aggressive. It sounds like these folks are, for the most part, heavily adrenaline fueled, just, you know, on the phone all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, excited by the bet. And what was it like for you as a woman working in that world? Well, it was, it was an education. Um, I mean, it was very interesting. It, what, there are very few women in that, uh, Wall Street in general, but in the hedge fund world in particular, I, I certainly noticed that very quickly. I would often be at meetings. I was often going to these sort of analyst meetings where companies were presenting about their, their mergers or their businesses or whatever. And there were, you know, often I'd be the only woman or one of a very small number of women. Right. You know, there were a couple of funny times when somebody would tell me to get to go get lunch, and my boss would have to say, "Well, she's a senior wow. analyst. She doesn't. She's not the like secretary or whatever it is you think she is. She's just she's an analyst, and she doesn't get lunch for you." Someone would just assume that you were the secretary. It happened a couple of times. Wow. I think wow. that can happen to young women in a lot of different sure. industries, frankly. It's a problem. But um, <laughs> but it was also very interesting to be surrounded by all of this you know, risk-taking. And I, I worked with quite a few people who I really did like a lot. I found a lot of my colleagues to be extremely witty and smart uh, and sharp and kind of 
funny. To I mean, they, they, right. they almost had a, a sort of a gallows humor of the sort you expect a group of surgeons to have. Okay. In the, you know, when they're in the middle of doing a heart transplant, like right. they're just cracking jokes all the time. Well, I guess they're just they're dealing with such like sharp narrative arcs all the time that you kind of have to, you know, success, failure, success, failure. Blowing off steam is a big, <laughs> yeah. a big part of what you have to do to manage your stress level, I think. Um, yeah. But but it really was not, I was not suited to that type of work. I don't, you need to be comfortable taking risk and right. making decisions really quickly. And I am not comfortable with either of those things. I'm a cautious, careful person. Risk, you know, of any kind is the sort of thing that keeps me awake at night worrying. Right. I don't like to make decisions quickly. Actually, I hem and haw and, and research excessively every time I have to make a big decision. And here you'd have to kind of look at something and then quickly decide yes or no, up, up or down, long or oh, short. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah. found that really hard. That's I, interesting, though, because, like, your job there is to, is to mitigate risk. And, they're, like, we've talked to Daniel Kahneman, who's the, he's, he's like a behavioral economist, you could say, or who's studied um, cognitive biases and, and his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is about the sort of two systems of thinking. System one, which is like quick decision making, and system two, which is more reliable, but not if you're running from a tiger kind of thing. And the kind of work that I guess, you know, your role sort of required you to do both at once. I mean, they want you to make good decisions that are with limited risk very, very fast which is in a sense impossible in a way like I thought it was a little <laughs> yeah. a little bit of a, a tall order frankly um, yeah that is something that Steve Cohen is very good at I, I certainly learned over the course of reporting my book because he he was he was famous at, at being able to deal with risk well right um, one of the big problems when you're working as a trader is um, arises when you become too emotionally invested in your trades right. and are not willing to acknowledge when you made a mistake. And then so so often people will just watch things not go as they'd hoped and they start to lose money and they just let it continue instead of cutting off the, the right. bleeding right away. And um, I heard from so many people that, that Steve Cohen actually was very good about just being dispassionate and making just like a, you know, you have to reassess your, your investment every, have, has something changed? If something has changed, you need to reevaluate your idea, you know, in the first place and acknowledge yeah. you might have made an error. There's um, an interesting section in your book where, where it's like, you know, the middle of the crash of, you know, right when it's happening and it seems like Steve Cohen is the only one around him approaching that with sang froid, you know, is not, people are jumping out of windows and such. That was one of his great skills. I mean, people people still describe him as one of the best traders of his generation. And I think, ir irrespective of whatever happened at his firm and what he allowed to happen, he, he he's enormously talented at that thing, at, at yeah. making quick decisions. The thing that I really hated doing and was not very good at, in my opinion, he is excellent at that. So let's talk a little bit about Stephen Cohen, um, because that is the subject of the book. You know, what, and he's a very interesting character, but what, like, what drives somebody to become someone like him, to be at the head of this multi-billion dollar operation, making lightning fast trades, and then ultimately getting embroiled in, in, in uh, crime? <laughs> well, I think clearly uh, you have to have a tremendous amount of ambition. And there is no question that he wanted to be rich and get rich on Wall Street. And that is that is a thing to, to desire uh, as a young person, I suppose. It is not at all what I was raised to, to seek out in life. Um, 
Yeah, I str I gotta say, I'll interrupt and say that I struggle with that a little bit. You know, just anytime I'm dealing with this world is that like, it's hard for me to kind of put aside the moralizing part of myself that wants to say like, this is just a bad person to be, you know, like, you know, well, I, would, I mean, yeah. these are people, you know, yeah. they're living their lives, but you yeah, know. no, and of course they're not all bad people. Yeah. And I, I mean, there are different reasons yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. go into that, yeah. of course. It can be interesting, challenging work, and um, right, right. you can certainly then do good things with your money after you make it, and sure. you know the list goes on. But I mean, in his case, he did grow up in a in a very middle class family in Great Neck, Long Island, where there was a lot of wealth and affluence around him, and I don't think they were among the wealthier families. Right. And money was a little tight in their household, and this is something I heard from people that he, you know, that frustrated him a little bit. I would also say that there was just something different about him. It was partly a personality thing. I mean, he had, um, there were eight kids in the family and he really just stood out from the beginning. And his brother told me this very funny story, which is in the book about how he remembered their mother um, making steak for young Stephen and giving the rest of the kids hot dogs. Right, right, right. And I had a hard time believing that a mother would do something so blatant to favor one child over the other. But just the fact that his brother remembers it that way, I thought was really telling. Everyone just thought Stephen was going to do something really special. And he very early on, he was interested in poker. He was interested in the stock tables in the newspaper. Right. He, he finished high school. He ran off to Wharton, where all the kind of people who wanted to go to Wall Street went. And he was very focused on that goal. He did not do a lot of soul searching and go go travel around Europe and think about his different options. He wanted to go to Wall Street and make a lot of money. He didn't want to have to worry about money anymore. He, he wanted out of his sort of very tight middle class life. And The armchair psychologist in me, one or psychiatrist, wonders if he might be a little bit on the spectrum. Like his personal life is sort of a shambles. Like he's not very good at relationships or people or human stuff so much like in a way it's not surprising <laughs> yeah. uh, it's true though he I found him I mean he, he doesn't have very many interests outside of trading I yeah. mean I, he's become a sort of a passionate art collector but you know as after he became very wealthy and successful but I don't even know if that is sort of I mean that is more something you just do after you become a rich hedge fund right. guy you know I it, it, it brings you a certain cultural cachet, you're saying in the book, like the, the, these guys can buy into a world that... It that makes you, you much cooler and more interesting. cocktail parties or whatever. Oh, I mean, that's the problem. It's, it's sort of like, oh, you're... I mean, I know this having worked at a hedge fund. You tell people, oh, I'm a hedge fund analyst at a party, and their eyes would just glaze <laughs> over. And, um, but I, if that, you show them your Picasso, that's a different story. That's it. You will impress the ladies with your Picasso painting. And, uh, but no, I mean, people used to say that at four o'clock on Friday when the market would close, he would just look depressed. He'd have to go home for the weekend. And uh, sometimes he'd stay up all night trading. You know, they have like various different types of securities that trade all night, you know, in the Asian markets. And sometimes okay. he would just stay up trading late at home, like these little e-minis, whatever they were, different index uh, things that you could trade. and. Um, it was really his only interest, and I think it's still right. the case. I, I think that is just his singular passion. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think when you have so much, uh, so much of your kind of cognitive energy is just directed at this one thing, yeah, I think other areas of your life suffer, and I, I don't think his, his personal life was a bit of a mess for a lot of it. And, um, you know, many people did describe him as a pretty ruthless Businessman. I mean, there are many stories in the book Cutting where he, off his friends and yeah. Um, there, there are people who feel very betrayed by him. Yeah. You know, who who really thought they were his friend or were partners with him. Um, 
even his first wife, and then, you know, at some point, he didn't want them or need them anymore, and it was, it seems quite ruthless, the way he would just excise those people, and, um, you know, he, he, he definitely accumulated some enemies over his, uh, over his life. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the, the what, last thing I guess I want to talk about about the book, and then we'll, let's go into the surprise clips, is, um, I mean, it was extraordinary to me the fact that Wall Street evolved, the, the, the hedge fund industry evolved to the point where you had these expert networks, which was basically a, an industry unto itself of middlemen connecting hedge funds or traders with insiders at companies, presumably to give them publicly available information but that like from any outside observer, it's like obviously these guys are gonna be trying to get like get the goods, right? Yes, it was it's <laughs> trying to explain how that business could possibly be legitimate <laughs> to, uh, to people who are not in that field is difficult because people, people have asked me about this before. Now, on the surface, of course, there's nothing wrong. And I mean, again, this is something I would do, you know, to, I remember there was a period of a lot of consolidation in, among um, waste hauling companies, companies that pick up your garbage, right. okay? So so a deal gets announced of two garbage companies. Well, what do I know about the garbage collection industry? Oh my God, it's largely a local market. There's a lot of local regulations and municipal laws governing it. Right. You have to figure all that out really quickly if you're gonna make your bet on that deal. So, okay. so you, you, in theory, you could call an expert network who would connect you with someone who knows all about that that industry, and they'll tell you all about how the garbage business works, and um, what are the potential roadblocks to a merger in the garbage industry. Okay, great, so now I know a lot more. But of course, because we know who we're dealing with, which is these very sharky, aggressive, hungry hedge funds who are all competing with each other, they're trying to get the nugget that is gonna make them money, which is, by definition, something that other people don't know. Right. So. What you ended up having was these um, these expert networks collecting money in order hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars over time to connect hedge fund investors with sort of mid-level employees, largely a lot of tech companies where there's a lot right. of kind of insider trading because those stocks are very volatile and they go way up and down and sort of very attractive if you have inside information about a tech company. Um, and of course, you're going to end up with these much more sophisticated, aggressive people really pressuring these others who perhaps don't know what they're getting into or offering to bribe them. I mean, there's so much potential for corruption sure. in that relationship. Yeah. And um, ultimately, the expert network firms, at least some of them, were not properly policing what was going on. And it's a very difficult thing to try and monitor their conversation and make sure it doesn't cross the line. But um, well, and to some extent, some of them were probably weighing the risk benefits of like not policing that too closely because they would be in greater demand if their people were giving valuable information. Right? Yeah, no, the FBI <laughs> agents who who are sort of some of my main characters were. I mean, they were shocked when they first learned about this. People could not <laughs> believe this was a thing that was going on in the open. And um, I remember, you know, one of the one of the uh, FBI agents saying at some point in the story, "Well, how, they you could tell almost immediately by looking at which experts were in the highest demand." Because right. basically, right. word would get around that this one was really good. And so everybody- What does that mean? Yeah, yeah right. what could that possibly mean? <laughs> it cannot possibly mean that they're sharing information they, that this person is paying a lot of money to get that they could get somewhere else. Right. And it's really just logic. So um, at least one of these expert network firms was, um, was shut down in the course of this investigation. 
There are others that still exist that have tried to reform or that never really got into the same level of trouble, but clearly there's a lot of potential for abuse in that system. Yeah, and it just, it seems to me, I, you know, again, like, the, the, what I think is legitimate skepticism, it seems to me that what happens, you know, a little bit like cockroaches or whatever, is like you, you, you know, the FBI comes in, they do a, very, a long, elaborate case, they make it, they, you know, take down a company like SAC Capital, and then they make it difficult to do things maybe in the same exact way for a while, but then something else, the industry keeps evolving. Sure. They, they find new instruments, new ways, you know. They innovate. Yeah. 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 So it seems like that's where I'm, like, I don't want to be cynical, but that's where it feels like scary that, you know, it's sort of almost impossible long term to, that this will remain clean, you know. I felt disheartened yeah. by the end, especially given just what's going on politically. Um, right, sure. Yeah. I felt disheartened because it does seem as if the government is always a few steps behind. And when you look at the resource mismatch, right, I mean, the right, government right. has very powerful tools at its disposal. It can wiretap, it can arrest you, all this stuff. But the fact is these hedge funds and Wall Street more generally is very, very sophisticated. And the financial incentives and the, the, the imperative, the greed impulse are very, very strong. And it just left me feeling that th that industry does require very careful but sophisticated regulation and monitoring. And you cannot just leave that world to regulate itself. It's been proven to not work over and over and over. And we're now in an era where the whole ethos coming out of Washington is to just let them run wild and do whatever they want. And, right. and it's not going to lead anywhere good, good for society. It's yeah. just not. Yeah, yeah. So. Right, and, and to actually regulate and police that, and like going back to the thing of like whether they're adding value of any kind or not, like it, it actually is would cost a staggering amount of money and resources to properly pay attention and you know regulate that like it would it's very expensive like that 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 industry is expensive for taxpayers if yeah. we're, if we're policing it right yes yeah. and also expensive <laughs> to bail out and and yeah, yeah. and I guess yeah. I, I I should know we spoke with the financial crisis I mean hedge funds were not sort of at the center of kind of causing right, that crisis right, right, right. but I would argue that hedge fund thinking and behavior did contribute and um, but I, I I feel that a lot of what's going on now is the result of the, the, that crisis and just the the way, first of all, the government re responded to it and didn't really penalize a lot of people properly and had to bail them all out. And people are still very mad about all that. Legitimately and, um, so. Yeah, and, and <laughs> inequality has just gotten worse since then, uh, remarkably. Right. Yeah. I, people are going to get more and more angry and frustrated uh, yeah. as this gets worse. Yeah, and so the politics will shift probably ultimately. I mean, th 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 that's that's what has to, that, that you know, there'll be some political response, I would think. You know, ground, yeah, we're waiting. we're waiting, we're waiting. Yeah, right, yep. we are waiting. <laughs> as of this recording, we, we, we are waiting patiently. Um, all right, so let's see what they've got for us, eh? Okay. Um, mm -hmm. This expert is Tristan Harris, who I think is a neuroscientist. Okay. Your brain is vulnerable to hacking. Companies are exploiting that. So let's just start there and see All where right. we go. All right. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible 
because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, one thing we don't talk about is that um, it's sort of hard to talk about this. Our, our minds have these kinds of backdoors. There's just, there's kind of, if you're human and you wake up and you open your eyes, there is a certain set of dimensions to your experience that can be manipulated. When I was a kid, uh, I was a magician, and you learn all about these limits, you know, that short-term memory is about this long, and there's different reaction times, and if you ask people certain questions in certain ways, you can control the answer. And this is just the structure of being human. To be human means that you are persuadable in every single moment. I mean, the thing about magic, as an example, is that magic works on everybody. Sleight of hand, right? It, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, it's not about what someone knows, it's about how your mind actually works. So knowing this, it turns out that uh, there's this whole playbook of persuasive techniques that actually I learned when I was at the Stanford uh, Persuasive Technology Lab, and that most people in Silicon Valley in the tech industry learned as ways of getting your attention. So one example um, is we are all vulnerable to social approval. We really care what other people think of us. So for example, you know, when you upload a new photo, a new profile photo of yourself on Facebook, uh, that's a moment where our mind is very vulnerable to knowing what other people think of my new profile photo. And so when we get new likes on our profile photo, Facebook knowing this could actually message me uh, and, and say, oh, you have new likes on your profile photo. And we, it knows that we'll be vulnerable to that moment because we all really care about when we're tagged in a photo or when we have a new profile photo. And the thing is that they control the dial, the technology companies control the dial for when and how long your profile photo shows up on other people's news feeds. So they can orchestrate it so that other people more often end up liking your profile photo over a delayed period of time, for example, so that you end up uh, having to more frequently come back and see what the new likes are, right? And the problem is that they don't do this because they're evil. They do it because, again, they're in this race for our attention. And we should also ask, is that necessarily such a bad thing if they're orchestrating it so that other people like my, my photo? I mean, that might feel good to me. But So we have to have a new conversation about as these technology companies use these techniques, these vulnerabilities in our minds, when is that actually aligned and good for us? When is that ethical? When is that honest? When is that fair? And when is that dishonest and unfair? Because they're actually manipulating our minds in a way that doesn't add up to our spending our time well on the screen. Well, uh, the first, I mean, I, I thought it was a very interesting point, but it's also something companies have been doing forever. Right. But uh, the tech companies have a very, very powerful new way to manipulate this and this kind of amplify it and that I find a little bit alarming based just on observing my own behavior. What are, what's bothering you about how, about your own sort of tech engagement? Well, it's funny, I can connect it, here's one way I can connect it to my book. So, so, <laughs> okay. so when you have a book coming out, you um, spend oh, yeah. a lot of time being coached and told, you know, how to use social media to promote your book and um, you enter into this whole other level of self-promotion mode on Twitter and Facebook and whatever other platforms you're using that personally I find a little bit uncomfortable. I'm always trying to find the line between not being 
annoyingly self-promotional. Show offy and whatever. Um, yeah. But when a, when a book comes out, everyone says, listen, you got to just do whatever it takes to, to let people know about your book and to, to keep up attention on the book. So you get into this habit of just incessantly tweeting your positive reviews and your ranking on the Times bestseller. I mean, it's just relentless and it goes on for weeks. And at some do you think they're right? Are they, by the way, I mean, because I, I feel exactly the same way you do. Like, I have the same problem with promoting this podcast. Like, I do it, but like, yeah, do you think they're right? I sort of don't believe them. I think they're turning everyone into terrible people. I don't think we should do it. Like, Well, if we could all collectively agree to uh, refuse, I would be totally up for that. Um, I don't know. It's 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 hard to say whether yeah. it works. There's so much kind of just general noise out there right, right now, right. and especially just with the Trump obsession. Uh, I do understand the argument that you need to kind of do whatever you can to just alert people to the fact that your product, whatever it is, exists. I mean, that's sure, you know sure. that's no, important. That you put sense. a lot of work into it, and it's very worthy, and people won't even know about it. But uh, but I have found that I've been trying to wean myself off a little bit of that. Um, and also, it was just taking a lot of time away from, you know, now I'm sort of entering the kind of wind-down mode of initial book launch stuff, and right. I need to get back to my my day job, and um, tweeting all the time about my book is just not a way to do that. So, so right. but I think it's very interesting, because it, I, I could feel it happening. There was, I was fortunate to get a lot of positive feedback, and... I became obsessive about checking because every time I checked, and this went on for several months, there was some new thing, a new review, a new comment, whatever it was, and it starts, you realize, you start to enjoy that feeling, right. that reaffirmation. Yeah. It is a bit addictive, and I could see that happening, and I'm trying to wind it down now. I feel like more, even more in a sense than, well, at least as much as the time is a problem, the time that we spend getting sucked into, you know, various things that are competing for our attention uh, online, is the way that it scatters attention overall. The fact that it's not contained within a certain block of time, you know? That's the thing. I mean, like, if you're trying to do anything worthy, as you put it, it requires sustained, focused yep. attention. Yes. When you're not like, oh, gee, I wonder what, what wait, wait <laughs> let me, what, did someone say something about my cool show that just, <laughs> which is the thing that your mind immediately does the moment yes. that you have that like discomfort, which is actually probably the most productive and creative moment that you have, where you're like sitting there working on the thing and you're like, that's the moment when you go, oh my God, I wonder, you know. Yeah, like, oh, it's a distraction. Yeah, <laughs> right. it's, it's an excuse to procrastinate. It's yeah. terrible. Yep. No, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, my little exercise has been to only look now a couple of times a day or to try. I, I often fail at this. And, and if I have that impulse to go look at the New York Times, I mean, that is more beneficial. Right. Go read an actual right. newspaper or something. I will mm. learn something. Right. I've been right. trying that habit just to satisfy that need to kind of look at click on something. But yeah, it's no, a struggle. I know I've said this uh, before on this show, but I, I deleted Facebook from my phone. I, I deleted Twitter. Like I, I, I don't have a Twitter client on my phone anymore. I now have to do all that stuff at the computer. But even still, it's like. It's too much. I was I was surprised to learn that there is a Stanford Attention Institute or whatever. <laughs> I was a bit um, startled by that too. It sounds a little bit creepy, although um, probably the alumni of that institute are probably very very wealthy and will give Stanford a lot of money. So yes, I would imagine. You know that this attention getting 
business. It's like another industry that might need to be regulated in some ways. And it's, but we also are going to have to learn how to regulate ourselves. Like I think about the young people coming yes. up today where it's like, oh, they're digital natives. They're plugged in all the time. But these are human beings with brains. And at some point, they might say, you know what? I'm trying to write a book and I can't write my book, you know, because I'm constantly checking Instagram, right? So I might have to evolve in some way, or, you know. Yeah, it's very easy to sound like a grumpy older person, but uh, yeah. I, I, I worry about people who are just completely immersed from this from a very young age. Yeah. It cannot be all good. It seem them. it seems not, but I but but I guess I guess where I want to like be hopeful for the human species is that like we are resilient and that maybe maybe being inundated with this new reality will force us at some point to re-examine the situation and say you know for the younger people to say wait a minute like I can't do anything you know if if indeed that's the case right if we're not just wrong and like you know about all this maybe they will evolve and be become much better at multitasking. But so far, it seems that multitasking is not a real thing. You can't really do it. Right. No, but or yeah. they backlash against it and yep. create apps that block some of the things for a while when they're trying to do something. Yeah. Uh, coping that mechanisms. That will be a whole industry. It already is, of course. But <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Sheila, I think that that pretty much winds up our time here. Um, I, you know, thank you so much for coming in. I, I really enjoyed your book, Black Edge, and recommend it to my, my readers, especially well, to any of them, but especially those who don't really know what's going on and what's been going on inside Wall Street. Well, thanks. It was great to be here. Thank thanks you. so much. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Uh, thank you so much for listening. For longtime listeners or you know fans that are in the New York area, I'm looking for an intern to help me with audience development, basically to reach out to and connect with and grow our wonderful audience. You can email me at jason at bigthink.com uh, if you have anybody in mind that you think would be perfect for this. This will be starting in the fall. Second thing is we now have a Facebook group. It's called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast. So if you go to Facebook, search for Think Again or Friends of Think Again, go ahead and request to join and I'll, I'll let you in. The more the merrier. Please come and talk with us about the ideas on the show. Yeah.